0: It's 1475 in a Florentine artist's studio one of the young apprentices calls his master to see an angel he has painted the master a man called Andrea del Verrocchio walks over paintbrushes in hand to see the progress on the painting called the baptism of christ upon seeing the work verrocchio is stunned the angel is unlike any painting he has ever seen before. It has a quality, a luminescence, a radiance which makes it stand out from the rest of the work despite not being the main focal point. He pauses for a brief moment to admire the painting before, suddenly, in a flash, he snaps his paintbrushes and exclaims that he will never paint again. And he storms off. And true to his word, The Baptism of Christ is the last painting attributed to Verrocchio. The young apprentice was called Leonardo da Vinci. And while this story is often regarded as the fantasy or embellishment of the biographer Vasari, it serves to illustrate the reputation and admiration da Vinci had already started to acquire by the time he was 23 years old. Leonardo da Vinci was perhaps one of the most prolific geniuses to have ever lived In fact, the name Da Vinci is synonymous with genius. He was, and still is, the archetype for the idea of the Renaissance Man, a man who develops knowledge and skill in all areas. In fact, if you search the term Renaissance Man, a picture of Leonardo will pop up. His mastery across numerous broad domains, including painting, biology, and military engineering, still astounds us to this day, as it did the people of Da Vinci's time. Leonardo painted the world's most famous painting, the Mona Lisa, as well as, at the time of this podcast, the world's most expensive painting sold at auction, Salvatore Mundi, which sold for $450 million in 2017. His painting of The Last Supper is instantly recognisable and is also one of the most famous paintings in the world. His notebooks have provided insight into his genius and inspiration for generations. One of his notebooks, the Codex Leicester, was bought by Bill Gates for $30 million, which is one of the highest prices ever paid for a single book. As we will learn in this inaugural episode of the Enduring Lives podcast, he was beyond his time. Many of his discoveries were not rediscovered by others for hundreds of years. It wasn't until 2014, nearly 500 years after Leonardo's death, that his discovery of the function of the tuberculae which are muscle fibres lining the heart, was confirmed by modern techniques. Leonardo was also a keen observer of the modern world, and he was interested in many scientific fields such as anatomy, botany and geology. He made detailed studies of the human body, plants and the earth. And his drawings and notes on these subjects are considered masterpieces in their own right. He was the first person to draw a bird's eye view map, that was precise with respect to layout and scale. We take this for granted in the modern world with satellite mapping. But in Leonardo's time, producing such a map required unrivaled ingenuity. Leonardo's notebooks are objects of wonder that show the breadth and depth of his interests. They're also curious because his notes are written in a mirror script. That is, the writing is both backwards and back to front, like it's being viewed in a mirror. His anatomical drawings, while never intended for publication, nevertheless laid the groundwork for modern scientific illustration. In one famous illustration, he drew a fetus in the womb, and as far as we know, he was the first person in history to do this. As we will see, he was the first person to do many things. Hi, I'm Shane Lee, and this is the Enduring Lives podcast, where we explore the lives and enduring legacies of the world's most extraordinary people. In this episode, we are exploring the life of Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo di Sapiro da Vinci was born on Saturday, the 15th of April, 1452, to the unmarried 16-year-old Caterina di Lippi. His father was Messapero Fruson di Antonio da Vinci, also known as Sepero. He was a legal notary and was between 24 and 25 years old when Leonardo was born. The name da Vinci literally means from Vinci, but the exact place of Leonardo's birth is not completely certain. The most likely candidate is a small hamlet outside Vinci called Ancero, which today is the site of a museum dedicated to Leonardo. While we have some knowledge of Leonardo's early life, much of it remains shrouded in mystery. There is little information about the period between his birth in 1452 and the beginning of his apprenticeship under the artist Andrea del Verrocchio at the age of around 12 in 14. 14- Sixty-four. About the only time Leonardo shows up in the records of this period was in 1457 when Leonardo was just five years old and he appeared as a dependent living in the house of his grandfather, father and uncle Francesco in the town of Vinci. Leonardo was not living with his mother at this point. His mother, Caterina, was married to another man referred to as a Catabriga around one year after Leonardo was born. We don't know much about Leonardo's mother, but it is generally agreed that she was poor as she didn't have land or high status, with some claiming that she was a slave from either North Africa or from the Middle East. It is likely for this reason that Sapiro, Leonardo's father, did not marry Caterina. In fact, around 8 months after Leonardo was born, his father married a 16-year-old girl called Alberia, One of the mysteries surrounding Leonardo's early years is the extent and nature of his formal education, which remains unclear to this day. We do know that Leonardo did not receive a traditional scholar's education that would have included learning Latin and Greek. We know this because in his notebooks from later life he mentions his frustration in not having a scholarly education and his difficulty in learning Latin. He wrote... Because I am not well-educated, I know certain arrogant people think they can justifiably disparage me as an unlettered man. Of the education Leonardo received, we believe it to be only basic in nature. That is, it would have only consisted of reading, writing and basic arithmetic. The primary reason for this is likely Leonardo's status as illegitimate. Leonardo's lack of education may have been a blessing in disguise, as it is often cited as the reason for Leonardo's development into the genius he became, in that his lack of education drove his unquestionable thirst for knowledge because he was forced to answer his own questions about the world. Even as a young boy, Leonardo displayed skills as an artist and a fascination with the natural world. A story that the biographer Vasari tells exemplifies this. Sapiro was approached by a peasant who wanted to get a shield decorated in Florence. Sapiro intended to fulfil the peasant's request because the peasant was skilled at catching birds and fish. However, between the peasant handing over the shield and Sapiro taking it to Florence, Leonardo discovered the shield. He noticed that it was bent and the material was rough, so he took it upon himself to improve it. He straightened it, and took it to a turner who could smooth out the material. Leonardo then decided to paint something on the shield that would strike terror into anyone that saw it. At this point, Leonardo had a collection of lizards, bats and other animals as he was interested in the natural world, and he used these as inspiration for the monster he was going to paint on the shield. He left the shield in his room, propped up on an easel, And when his father walked in, it made him jump. He hadn't realised it was a painting. After the initial shock, he was amazed by the shield. Instead of giving the shield back to the peasant, Shapiro sold it for a 100 ducats and purchased another shield to give back to the peasant. This story highlights a number of important points about Leonardo. We see that he clearly had practical and artistic skills, Not only does he paint the shield so well that it was capable of scaring people, but he also knew how to straighten the shield. We also see his curiosity and fascination with the natural world in his collection of animals. With respect to his education, the story may have made Shapiro think that his son was suited to becoming an artist, both because he had the talent, but also because his talent could clearly be profitable. It may have been this incident which caused Shapiro to approach his friend, the artist Andrea del Verrocchio, with the idea that Leonardo might become his apprentice, and then become an artist. The path to becoming an artist in Renaissance Italy required becoming a member of a guild. The guilds held monopolies over the art market. If an artist wanted to sell their work, they would have to become a member of the guild in order to do so legally. Joining a guild required first becoming a master artist and the only way to do that was to apprentice in the workshop of a master artist. Andrea del Verrocchio was one such master. Verrocchio was a master goldsmith, sculptor and painter. In 1462, Leonardo's father was employed in Florence as a notary for Cosimo de' Medici and then in 1464 it is likely that Leonardo moved to Florence with his father, because around this time both his stepmother and grandfather with whom he was living at the time both died. At this time, Leonardo was Sapiro's only son. Leonardo would have been aged 12 when he moved to Florence, and it is likely around here when he became an apprentice to Andrea del Verrocchio, although sources disagree about exactly when this happened with some saying it happened as late as 1469 when Leonardo was 17. Verrocchio's workshop was located around the corner from Sapiro's notary office, and it was here where Leonardo expanded and honed his already prodigious artistic skills. The artists in Verrocchio's workshop created paintings, sculptures and other works under the tutelage of Verrocchio. In the workshop he learned drawing and the rules of perspective which he would have done on wood because learning on paper was expensive. He learned how to sculpt and work metal, and perhaps most famously, he learned how to paint. It is from around this point when the earliest known Leonardo notebooks are dated. When Leonardo was around 20 years old in 1472, he qualified as a master artist in the Guild of St. Luke. This was an important milestone in Leonardo's development as an artist, because entry into the Guild of St. Luke bestowed upon him the right to open his own workshop, sell his own paintings, and take on his own apprentices. However, Leonardo did not immediately leave Verrocchio's workshop. Instead, he stayed with Verrocchio for another five years, until 1477, when he started working independently. Whilst 1472 was a milestone year for Leonardo, because he officially became a master artist. 1473 represents a milestone year for the history of art, because on August 5th, 1473, Leonardo did something which, as far as we know, up until that point, had not been done before. He drew a drawing of an autonomous landscape, that is, a landscape without human figures in it. It wasn't for another 200 years that the first autonomous landscape painting was created by Peter Paul Rubens. This is an example of a recurring theme of Leonardo's life, that is, being well ahead of his time. Being 100 years ahead of everyone else is something we will see a lot of as we further explore the life of Leonardo da Vinci. Somewhere between 1468 and 1473, Andrea del Verrocchio commenced work on what would become his most renowned painting, The Baptism of Christ. The reason this painting is famous is because of Leonardo's contribution of an angel and the effect this reportedly had on Verrocchio. Although not the central subject and taking up relatively little space in the overall composition, Leonardo's angel stands out distinctly from the rest of the artwork. The pose of the angel was a new innovation for the time. The angel possesses a unique quality that creates the impression of it being superimposed, almost as if a spotlight is shining down upon it. Arguably the main reason for this was that the majority of the painting was created in egg tempura paint, whilst the angel was created using oil paint. It's worth pointing out that modern scholars have attributed a large proportion of the whole painting to Leonardo. What really made this painting famous was the story surrounding it. As we have heard, according to Vasari, the story goes that upon seeing Leonardo's angel, Andrea del Verrocchio renounced painting, understanding he could never attain the level of mastery exhibited by Leonardo although widely regarded today as an apocryphal tale of Vasari's, There is one piece of evidence that supports the story. The Baptism of Christ was Andrea del Verrocchio's final painting. He did continue to pursue art, however. There are several sculptures attributed to him that were created after the completion of the painting, but he never painted again. In Renaissance Florence, There were boxes embedded in the city walls designed for the purpose of allowing ordinary Florentines to anonymously report crimes. In April 1476, Leonardo, along with several others who worked in Verrocchio's workshop, faced accusations of sodomy after being reported through these anonymous boxes. The same accusation was made again in June of the same year. However, due to a lack of evidence, nothing came of these accusations, and they were eventually dismissed. These events, coupled with the fact that Leonardo remained a bachelor his whole life, have led to the generally accepted view that Leonardo was a homosexual. The year following the accusations against Leonardo and the others in Verrocchio's workshop, Leonardo, at the age of 25, took a significant step and established his own studio in Florence. This decision was a bold move considering the intense competition for commissions in the city at the time. The first known commission that the newly independent Leonardo received was an altarpiece for the chapel in the Palazzo della Signoria in Florence. In a city teeming with artistic talent, gaining a commission during that period was exceptionally challenging. It is therefore unlikely that Leonardo secured the project based on talent alone. It is likely that Leonardo's father, leveraging his own business interactions with the Signoria as a notary, played a role in securing the commission for his son. This aligns with the way in which Leonardo's father had helped advance his career in the past, such as when he introduced him to Andrea del Verrocchio. The contract for this piece was signed on the 10th of January 1478. This first commission marks an unfortunate pattern of Leonardo's life, that he never delivered the completed work. We can't be sure why Leonardo didn't deliver this commission, but it is reasonable to speculate that it was because he had too many things on the go at once. Around this time, we know of at least three other paintings he was working on. Two Madonnas, the Benoit Madonna, the Madonna of the Carnation, and also a portrait of Ginevra de Bensi. Inspecting Leonardo's life at this point more closely, we start to see evidence of his boundless curiosity and development into more than just an artist. He was becoming an engineer. In addition to the painting, the first pages from the collection of notebooks later to become the Codex Atlanticus are dated from this year. This collection contains early drawings and inventions intended for military use, such as the design of a castle defence which would prevent enemy soldiers from scaling the castle walls with ladders because of a clever and original mechanism which would push the ladders over. It also contains the first references to a large-scale plan to divert the Arno River, which we will hear more about later. With all this going on and having to run his newly formed workshop, the picture of why Leonardo might not have delivered his first commission begins to make sense. The commission was eventually completed by Filippino Lippi around 7 years later. The political atmosphere in Florence in Leonardo's time was tense. There is reference to this in Leonardo's notebooks. In 1478 there was a plot supported by Pope Sixtus IV and the Vatican to overthrow the ruling Medici. Both Lorenzo de Medici and his brother Giuliano were attacked with Giuliano dying from his injuries. The conspirators were caught, castrated and hanged. Leonardo witnessed at least one of the executions, that of Bernardo Bandini de Baroncelli, who was executed in December of 1479. We know this because Leonardo drew the hanged Bernardo in his notebooks. In 1481, Leonardo received a commission for the high altar in San Donato Ascapeto a church which was attached to a monastery. This commission echoes the earlier altarpiece that was commissioned in 1478 for the chapel in the Palazzo del Signoria, for three reasons. Firstly, this commission was never finished. Secondly, it speculated that Leonardo's father was also instrumental in him gaining the commission, as we know that Leonardo's father, Shapiro, notarised the monastery's business dealings. And finally, after Leonardo failed to complete and deliver the painting, Filippino Lippi was commissioned to do the work. The commission in question was the adoration of the Magi. While this painting by Leonardo remains today unfinished, it is nonetheless remarkable. Its compositional complexity marks an evolution in Leonardo the artist. The painting depicts the Virgin Mary and Child with three wise men, or Magi, on their knees surrounding them. In the background there are many other figures and features including riders on horseback, a palm tree and ancient ruins. To the far right of the painting is a man looking somewhere outside of the painting, and it is believed that this figure is a self-portrait of the young Leonardo. The reason for Leonardo not finishing this painting is more clear-cut than the commission of the altarpiece in 1478. In September, aged 29, Leonardo left Florence for Milan in order to work for Ludovico Sforza. Ludovico Sforza was Duke of Milan from 1494 to 1499. In September of 1482, Ludovico was involved in the War of Ferrara, also known as the Salt War. This conflict was between the Duke of Ferrara, who was later to become Ludovico's father-in-law, and with the papal forces including the Pope we have met before, Pope Sixtus IV, who was involved in the Patsy conspiracy. Leonardo saw in this war an opportunity to secure employment, and wrote to Ludovico. In the letter, Leonardo highlighted some of his ideas and inventions related to warfare, including designs for cannons, bridges and covered vehicles. By showcasing his knowledge and expertise in these areas, Leonardo hoped to impress the Duke and secure a position in his court. The letter provides a fascinating insight into the mind of Leonardo. Brimming with Leonardo's ideas, it shows an extraordinary confidence in his abilities, especially because it's doubtful that he had ever actually carried out any of the inventions he talked about in the letter, at the point of writing at least. We certainly don't know of any employment or commissions prior to this in which Leonardo created instruments of war. The inventive and far-reaching ideas in the letter are characteristic of Leonardo, as was his self-belief and confidence. At the end of the letter he writes, And if any of the above-mentioned things seem impossible or impracticable to anyone, I am most readily disposed to demonstrate them in your park or whatsoever place shall please your excellency. Not just showcasing his knowledge of military engineering, Leonardo also highlights his skill in sculpture in his letter to Ludovico. He specifically mentions a proposal of a bronze horse sculpture that he could create as a tribute to Ludovico's father. The letter was a success. Ludovico hired Leonardo and first instructed him to create the statue of a horse in bronze. The statue was to be a mammoth undertaking, both in cost and complexity. Bronze sculptures at the time were around ten times as expensive as marble sculptures, and this statue was to be 24 foot high, or to put it another way, the equivalent of four humans stood on top of each other, this statue was yet another commission that Leonardo did not see through to completion. However, in this case, the blame for not finishing the work cannot be placed squarely on Leonardo's shoulders, as we will learn. This was to be the biggest statue made out of bronze at the time, and the scale of this statue provided a number of difficult challenges for Leonardo to solve, the biggest of which was how to actually create it. Leonardo's notebooks from the time contain a number of equestrian studies and plans for the statue. His early plans were to have a rider on the back of the horse, with the horse standing raised on its hind legs. This plan turned out to be too technically challenging, and therefore the rider was removed from the plan, and the horse was planned to stand solid on all four of its legs. Leonardo had planned to use the lost wax technique to mould the statue. The lost wax process had been around for thousands of years before Leonardo's day. This process requires creating a wax model and then encasing the model in a mould, after which molten metal could be poured into the mould, melting and replacing the wax to leave the final sculpture. This time-tested technique required modifications and ingenuity from Leonardo in order to deal with the problems of the scale of the statue. For example, the wax model would have buckled under its own weight so Leonardo decided to cast the horse in parts with the mould having to be reinforced with iron even in parts. Perhaps the bigger problem was how to handle the molten metal. The statue would be too high to pour red hot metal in from the top but Leonardo had a clever solution. He would mould the horse underground but this created another problem. Namely, he would need to dig a hole that was 24 foot deep. Leonardo had studied water and he knew that this meant hitting the water table. As a result, he decided to mould the statue on its side. Some of you might be reasonably questioning why he didn't consider moulding the horse on its side from the beginning. Well, The reason is that the lost wax technique traditionally required the statue to be upside down because gravity would pull the molten metal to the bottom of the mould, preventing imperfections at the most visible parts. We know that Leonardo intended to move the mould of the statue into the underground pit for casting via an ingenious crane system he had designed, which is noted in one of his notebooks, which is now the Codex Madrid. Leonardo created at least two models of the horse, a small wax sculpture currently housed in a private collection, and a full-scale clay model featuring both the horse and its rider. Sadly, the latter was destroyed, but not before being showcased at a wedding in Milan Cathedral. The material required for the statue proved to be the first and most major undoing of the project. At the project's outset, Ludovico had set aside the required amount of bronze to create the horse. But in 1494, the First Italian War broke out with Charles VIII of France, fighting against the Holy Roman Empire, Spain, and the League of Venice, who was led by Pope Alexander VI. On the 14th of November, Ludovico repurposed the bronze by sending it to his father-in-law, Ecole d'Este, Duke of Ferrara, to make cannons in support of Charles VIII. While it is possible that after the war, more bronze could have been procured, two further connected events put a nail in the coffin for the project. Both were in 1499. The first was that the French invaded Milan, overthrowing Ludovico Sforza. Before we get to the second one, you might be wondering what happened with the French. Wasn't Ludovico Sforza aiding them by providing bronze to make cannons only a few years ago in 1494? And yes, you'd be correct. But by 1499, a new French king was on the throne, Louis XII. The second event was that Gascon Bowman, who were aiding Louis XII, as well as his mercenaries, saw to it that the clay model of the horse was destroyed when they used it as target practice. Despite the loss of the original model, Leonardo's sketches and notes on the project survived, and these have been studied by scholars and artists over the centuries. In the late 20th century, a group of artists and engineers collaborated to create a full-scale bronze cast of the model based on Leonardo's plans, which is now on display at the Leonardo da Vinci Science and Technology Museum in Milan. Leonardo's interests were broad. 1487 saw Leonardo enter a design competition For the Tiberio, which was to be a dome constructed on Milan Cathedral. The competition drew many architects from the surrounding areas of Lombardy. Leonardo's notebooks from the time show his obsessive questioning and work on the design, which was characteristic for Leonardo. Unfortunately, Leonardo's design did not win the competition, but he was consulted on the project, and this formed his first architectural experience. Only a few years later, he was diversifying his interests and skills even further. Leonardo was involved in the planning and design of the Grand Festival of 1490. The Grand Festival was a lavish celebration held in Milan to mark the wedding of the son of Duke Ludovico Sforza and Isabella of Aragon. The festival was organised by Duke Ludovico who enlisted the help of many artists and architects including Leonardo. Leonardo was responsible for designing many of the festival's most impressive features including mechanical floats. Leonardo's contributions to the festival were widely admired and they helped solidify his reputation as one of the most talented and innovative artists of his time. His work on the festival also helped further establish him as a key figure in the core of the Sforza family. Leonardo was successful enough by 1490 to take on an apprentice called Salai, who was 10 years old when he joined Leonardo. Salai was to stay with Leonardo for the rest of his life. Salai's real name was Gian Giacomo Caprotti di Orano. He was given the nickname of Salai, meaning little devil. Because of his persistent bad behaviour, Salai was mischievous, and with a reputation of being difficult to handle. He was known to steal from Leonardo, and he was often caught telling lies. For example, Salai joined Leonardo in July of 1490, and by September he had started stealing. He stole a silver point from Leonardo's assistant Marco. This habit he kept up throughout his time with Leonardo. Despite these character flaws, however, Salai was a favourite of Leonardo's, and the two developed a close relationship that lasted until Leonardo's death. Leonardo is said to have been drawn to Salai's youthful beauty, and he frequently used him as a model for paintings. Salai is believed to have been the model for several of Leonardo's most famous works, such as St John the Baptist, and there is even debate among scholars that Salai is the model for the Mona Lisa because of his resemblance to the painting, and the fact that Salai is an anagram of Lisa. It is however doubtful that Salai was the model for the Mona Lisa, as we will discuss later. Despite their close relationship, there are some historical accounts that suggest that Leonardo's relationship with Salai was more than just that of a mentor and pupil. Some historians have suggested that Leonardo may have been romantically involved with Salai, although there is no concrete evidence to support this claim. Regardless of the nature of their relationship, it is clear that Leonardo and Salai had a profound impact on each other's lives. Salai remained with Leonardo until his death in 1519, and Leonardo bequeathed several of his personal belongings to Salai in his will. Leonardo was certainly busy in 1490 as it was also around this time that he was working on the painting, Lady with an Ermine. The painting depicts a young woman holding an ermine, a type of weasel-like animal that was a symbol of purity in Renaissance art. The young woman in the painting is identified as Cecilia Gallarini, who was the mistress of Ludovico Sforza. She is depicted wearing a simple dress and hairstyle, with a serene expression on her face, as she holds the ermine against her chest. The painting is notable for its composition, with the woman's head and body turned slightly to the side and her eyes looking off to the viewer's left. This creates a sense of movement, as if the woman had just turned to look at something or someone out of view. This composition was unusual for the time and shows Leonardo's willingness to experiment. The year 1490 is also notable for another of Leonardo's achievements. Despite what was clearly a hectic schedule, he found time to complete one of his most celebrated works of art, The Vitruvian Man. This iconic drawing depicts a male figure with outstretched limbs fitting inside both a circle and a square. It is renowned for its precision, mathematical accuracy and the idealisation of the human form, according to the principles of the ancient Roman architect Vitruvius. The Vitruvian Man is a defining icon of the Renaissance, encapsulating the values and ideals of the period, and it is a symbol of genius. It even appears on Italian euro coins. One of Leonardo's surviving paintings is unique, in that, ironically, there are two of them. The Virgin of the Rocks are two paintings by Leonardo. The first was commissioned in 1483 and the second was around 1493. The most likely reason for there being two paintings is because of a dispute with the co-fraternity of the Immaculate Conception in Milan, for whom he had originally agreed to paint the first painting as the centre of an altarpiece. We believe that the painting was delivered to the co-fraternity but then taken back and sold and the most likely reason for this was a dispute over pay. Leonardo and Ambrogio de Predis, a painter with whom Leonardo was both lodging and working with at the time, thought Leonardo had been underpaid for the painting. Leonardo claimed that the work had cost 800 lire and that he wanted another 1200 lire. Leonardo had even petitioned Ludovico Sforza to intervene in the matter. Leonardo and Ambrogio had argued that if the price could not be agreed by an independent expert, that the painting should be removed and sold. The second version of the Virgin of the Rocks, also known as the London version, was started by Leonardo around 1493 and finally delivered in 1508. Like the first version of the painting, the London version features the Virgin Mary, the infant Christ and John the Baptist in a rocky landscape, with an angel standing between the figures of Christ and John. The original version, which was completed around 1486, is now housed in the Louvre Museum in Paris, and the later painting can be found in the National Gallery in London. The story of the two Virgin of the Rocks paintings reveals a lesser-known aspect of Leonardo's abilities, his shrewdness in business affairs. While Leonardo is typically remembered for his artistic and scientific genius, his successful negotiation with the co demonstrates his astute business acumen. Despite the co unwillingness to pay what Leonardo had wanted for the first painting, Leonardo was able to navigate the situation by agreeing to produce a second version whilst retaining ownership of the first. This demonstrates that in addition to his artistic talents, Leonardo possessed a keen sense of negotiation and strategic thinking. In 1495, Leonardo began one of his most famous and monumental works of art, The Last Supper. Commissioned by Ludovico Sforza, Duke of Milan, the painting was to be placed in the refectory of the Dominican Monastery of Santa Maria della Grazie in Milan. Leonardo approached the painting in a unique way, using an experimental technique of his own devising known as dry fresco, or secco, which involved painting on a dry wall rather than on wet plaster. This allowed him greater control over the painting process and gave him more time to make changes and adjustments. The painting depicts the moment when Jesus reveals to his disciples that one of them will betray him. His innovative technique led Leonardo to face several challenges in painting The Last Supper. The dry plaster surface proved difficult to work with, and the paint began to flake and deteriorate soon after its completion. Additionally, the Duke of Milan's ongoing military campaigns caused numerous disruptions to the painting process. Leonardo is often said to have been a perfectionist, and there is a popular story that illustrates this. The story goes that Leonardo stood and looked at The Last Supper for a full day, seeming not to move as he contemplated the painting and its composition, working out how to improve it. While this story has been widely repeated, its accuracy is uncertain. There is also the story... That the prior of the Dominican monastery complained to Ludovico Sforza that Leonardo was taking too long to complete the painting. According to the story, the prior visited Leonardo's studio and was dismayed to find that he had made no progress on the painting for several weeks. When the prior questioned Leonardo about his lack of progress, the artist reportedly replied that he was searching for the perfect face to represent Judas, the disciple who would betray Jesus. The Prior was reportedly unhappy with Leonardo's response, and complained to the Duke of Milan about the delay. However, rather than reprimanding Leonardo, the Duke was said to have defended the artist, citing his reputation as a genius and his meticulous attention to detail. Leonardo retorted against the Prior by saying he would use his face for the face of Judas. The history of the Last Supper has been nothing short of turbulent. The painting technique used by Leonardo in The Last Supper has contributed to its poor condition today. Leonardo's experimental dry fresco also made the painting more vulnerable to deterioration over time. In addition to the problematic painting technique, The Last Supper has also suffered from damage and dampness and humidity. The Dominican monastery where the painting is located was reportedly damp and the moisture caused pigments to flake and peel away from the wall. And the painting has also suffered damage from human intervention. At some point in its history, the monks of the monastery reportedly put a door through the bottom of the painting, damaging the lower portion of the composition, which can still be seen to this day. During World War II, the city of Milan, where the Last Supper is located, was heavily bombed by Allied forces. The painting was in great danger of being destroyed or damaged by the bombing. In anticipation of the bombing, the painting was first covered with sandbags and then bricked up behind a false wall to protect it from potential damage. Additionally, the painting was carefully photographed and documented so that it could be reconstructed in the event that it was destroyed. The building that housed The Last Supper was hit by a bomb in 1943. However, due to the protective measures that had been taken, the painting was largely unscathed. While the building itself suffered damage and the walls surrounding the painting collapsed, the painting itself remained intact. After the war, a major restoration project was undertaken to repair the damage to the building and the wall surrounding the painting. The restoration work was completed in the 1950s, and the Last Supper remained on display in Milan although sources disagree on the exact date. Somewhere around 1496, and potentially as late as 1498, Leonardo started perhaps his most lesser-known artwork that still survives today, the Sala del S. The room in which the art is located is named after the wooden boards, or S, that form the ceiling. Leonardo covered the ceiling with a decorative scheme that simulates a grove of mulberry trees. The trees are depicted in a botanical manner with finely detailed trunks, branches and leaves painted in different shades of green. One of the most remarkable features of the Sala del As is the way in which Leonardo used space to create an immersive environment. The walls and ceiling are covered with a continuous image of tree branches. Another interesting aspect of the Sala As is its political significance. The room was commissioned by Ludovico Sforza, who was trying to reestablish his power and authority after a period of instability and conflict. Leonardo's design for the room was intended to symbolise the renewal and growth of Milan under Sforza's rule. The mulberry trees, which were cultivated in the region for their leaves using the production of silk, were a potent symbol of the city's economic and cultural vitality. 1499 was a turbulent year. It was the year that the French invaded Milan and overthrew Leonardo's patron, Ludovico Sforza. The invasion was a significant military campaign that marked a turning point in the political and military history of Italy. The campaign was led by King Louis XII following the death of King Charles VIII. The French were initially successful in their campaign, winning a series of battles and capturing several key cities, including Milan. Ludovico fled the city and was eventually captured by the French, who imprisoned him for the rest of his life. The French invasion had significant political and military consequences for Italy. It marked the beginning of a period of foreign domination in the region, as various European powers sought to exert their influence in Italy. It also led to the rise of the Italian Wars, a series of conflicts that lasted for several decades and involved various European powers. For Leonardo, the French invasion of Milan was a significant personal and professional setback. He was forced to leave the city and abandon many of his artistic and engineering projects. And in January 1500 he did just that. In February he moved to Venice where he saw employment as a military engineer. Venice was then embroiled in a war with the Ottoman Empire, and Leonardo saw an opportunity to use his engineering skills to design weapons and fortifications. He was hired by the Venetian Republic to provide his expertise in fortifications. He proposed a series of measures to improve the defences of the Ionzo River, also known as the Sokka River. His plan involved the construction of a series of small forts, each with its own artillery along the river's banks. He also proposed a series of movable barricades that could be deployed along the river to impede the progress of enemy ships. These barricades were designed to be easily moved and deployed by a small number of soldiers, allowing them to quickly adapt to changing conditions on the battlefield. These proposals were based on his extensive knowledge of military engineering, and his designs were considered innovative for the time. However, it's unclear how much of his plan was actually implemented, as the Venetians faced numerous other military challenges at the time, and it's likely the project was too costly. From Venice, Leonardo was to travel to Florence. Along the way, he stopped in Manitoua, where he started a cartoon for a portrait of Isabella d'Est, with whom he had been in regular correspondence. Isabella was a powerful and influential figure in Renaissance Italy, known for her patronage of the arts and her political savvy. Isabella had been petitioning Leonardo for some time to paint her portrait and the cartoon he started shows his intention to deliver the portrait as a painting. And the reason for this is that a cartoon is a full-scale preparatory drawing that an artist creates before beginning work on a larger painting or fresco. Cartoons are typically created using charcoal or graphite on paper, and they allow the artist to work out the composition, proportions, and other details of the final work before committing them to a larger surface. Cartoons can be used for paintings of all sizes, from small easel paintings to massive frescoes. In addition to serving as a guide for the final work, cartoons were also used as templates for transferring the design to the final surface. The cartoon will be placed on the surface of the wall or canvas, and small holes will be pricked along the lines of the design. Then the artist or their assistants, could use the holes as a guide for drawing the design onto the final surface. The cartoon of Isabella that Leonardo created had been pricked, so we see his intentions to create a painting from the cartoon. Unfortunately, we don't know if Leonardo ever completed and delivered this painting. If he did, the painting is currently lost. There are some surviving letters and references to a painting that Leonardo had completed, but we don't know for certain if they are referring to the portrait of Isabella. On April 24th, 1500, da Vinci arrived in Florence. This date marked the start of the period which scholars call the second Florentine period in Leonardo's life. By this time, Leonardo was well known and well regarded. Upon his return to Florence, he was appointed as an architectural expert to consult on how best to address foundational damages to the church near Florence. In this work, we see Leonardo combining his knowledge of engineering, architecture, and water. The problem as Leonardo diagnosed it was breakings of the walls, which was caused by a movement of the ground, which Leonardo further deduced was due to underground water flows, and he was dead right. He recommended improving the drainage. This was later done in 1501. In 1502, Leonardo was offered a job as general architect and engineer by Cesare Borgia, the son of Pope Alexander VI, and a powerful military leader known for his ambition and ruthlessness. Leonardo was aware of Borgia's reputation and the controversies surrounding his family's rule, and it is likely that Leonardo showed Borgia his military designs to appeal to his interests and become employed by him. During his time in Borgia's service, Leonardo worked on a number of projects, including the design of a new city and fortress for Borgia in the Romana region. He also conducted surveys of the territory and made detailed maps, as well as experimenting with new weapons and military strategies. It was in Borgia's service that Leonardo made advances in the field of cartography, Borgia had Leonardo travel around surveying various areas, likely for use in military campaigns. During this time, he produced the map of Imola, which is a remarkably accurate map that Leonardo achieved without the use of satellites and modern technology. The map is significant in the field of cartography for a number of reasons, and it highlights another instance of Leonardo being ahead of his time. Before the map of Imola, Maps were often rudimentary and lacked accurate depictions of geography, with many relying on symbolic representations rather than accurate depictions of the terrain. The map is one of the earliest known examples of a bird's eye view map, which is a type of map that depicts a landscape or city from an elevated perspective. This was a groundbreaking development in cartography as it allowed viewers to gain a more comprehensive and detailed understanding of the geography of a place the map of imola was significant for its attention to detail and the level of precision with which it was created leonardo spent a great deal of time conducting surveys and making observations in order to create an accurate representation of the city and the resulting map was both beautiful and informative finally the map of imola was significant for its influence on later cartographers and mapmakers if you imagine a map today, you will almost certainly imagine a bird's-eye-view map. In fact, it's hard to imagine a map that doesn't use this perspective. Leonardo's innovative approach to cartography and his use of perspective and geometry set a new standard in mapmaking, and his legacy can be seen in the development of modern cartographic and mapmaking techniques. Somewhere around December of 1502 or early 1503, Leonardo left the service of Cesare Borgia. It's not clear why Leonardo left his service, but some scholars have noted the possibility that the brutality at Borgia became too much. Leonardo was aware of the violence of Borgia when he joined his service, but around December of 1502, Borgia had one of Leonardo's friends strangled. At the same time, Borgia had used a man called Ramiro de Locra to instill fear and submission in the people of Chesnia, but as an act of furtherance. Borgia then had Ramiro chopped in half and left in the public square. One of Leonardo's lesser-known designs was for a bridge over the Golden Horn of Istanbul, which was then Constantinople. In 1503, Leonardo wrote a letter to Sultan Bayezid II of the Ottoman Empire, expressing his interest in working for him as a military engineer and designer of war machines. The letter was a response to the Sultan's request for skilled craftsmen and artisans. Leonardo wrote it seeking employment, having lost his patron after Borgia. In the letter, Leonardo introduces himself as an inventor and designer, and he provided examples of his skills, including his ability to design machines for war and his expertise in the construction of bridges, canals, and other engineering projects. The letter included a proposal for a bridge over the Golden Horn, a natural harbour and vital waterway for the city. Although the Sultan had wanted such a bridge constructed, he didn't respond to Leonardo. Leonardo's design for the bridge was a radical departure from the traditional arch bridges of the time and instead featured a single span that was supported by parabolic abutments on both sides. Furthermore, it was a project of massive scale for the time. The bridge da Vinci was proposing would have been 280 metres long, which would have made it the longest bridge in the world at the time. Despite not getting a response from the sultan, Leonardo's design today is considered a groundbreaking work of architecture and design. It was one of the many examples of Leonardo's forward-thinking and innovative approach to problem-solving, which we have seen again and again. 1503 seemed to have been a year of grand ambitions for Leonardo. In addition to the design of the bridge across the Golden Horn, in spring he was in Florence and he was starting plans to divert the Arno River. The project to divert the Arno involved altering the course of the river over a distance of approximately 12 miles. Even if the project was planned today, it would be an immense undertaking. The idea behind the plan was to cut off Pisa from the Arno River. The river was an essential resource to Pisa, and cutting it off was a military strategy spearheaded by Niccolo Machiavelli. Yes, that Machiavelli, famous for writing The Prince, whom Leonardo had met whilst in the employment of Borgia. Florence and Pisa had a contentious history. Florence controlled Pisa until it became an independent republic in 1494. This was an important loss for Florence because Florence's outlet to the sea was via Pisa. In reality, there were two projects that involved diverting the Arno. The first had the intention of cutting off Pisa, and the second involved building canals in Florence to make it more navigable and protect it from floods. Leonardo's plan involved constructing a series of dams and canals to divert the flow of the river away from the city. The project was highly ambitious and Leonardo's design included a system of locks and sluices that would allow boats to navigate the diverted river. His plan included detailed calculations of the effort required to complete the project. He had calculated that part of it would require 56,000 man-hours and it would require moving 1 million tonnes of earth. Leonardo shows his attention to detail in his notes, as he had worked out that if the earth was dug with buckets, each bucket would be handled by 14 men on its way back up to the top. As was often the case with Leonardo, He had designed machines to make the job easier. In one of his notebooks, the Codex Atlanticus, he drew a machine which would have been used to dig earth. It was pioneering and it looked like a wooden version of a modern day excavating machine. This ambitious project started on August 20th 1504. However, within just two months it was stopped. One major contributing factor to this was the exorbitant cost involved. Apart from paying labourers for their work, there was also the need to hire 1,000 soldiers to safeguard the workforce from potential attacks from the Pisan military. Historical records from that period also document disputes arising from payment issues, further complicating the project's progress. But even if the issues with the cost of this project were resolved, more trouble loomed. In October of 1504, there came a storm which flooded the river and the ditches that had been dug. The walls of the ditches collapsed and over 80 lives were lost. This disaster effectively put an end to the project to divert the Arno. While the dream to divert the Arno River was a short-lived and scarcely known ambition, a more famous work of Leonardo's is believed to have been started around the same time. Scholars believe that 1503, was the year that Leonardo painted his most famous work, the Mona Lisa, which today is arguably the world's most well-known painting. In spring of that year, Francesco del Giocondo commissioned Leonardo to paint a portrait of his wife Lisa. Without doubt, the most famous aspect of the painting is the Mona Lisa's smile. It is frequently described as enigmatic or mysterious. It is a half-smile, the painting was created using a technique known as stomato, which involves the use of delicate shading and blending to create a soft, hazy effect. The Mona Lisa has been the subject of much speculation and interpretation over the years. Some scholars believe that the painting was commissioned as a celebration of Lisa Gherardini's pregnancy. Others have speculated that the painting is a self-portrait of Leonardo himself in female form. Perhaps part of what makes the Mona Lisa well-known is its storied history. Napoleon Bonaparte owned the Mona Lisa for a brief period, and he kept the painting in his bedroom. He reportedly enjoyed looking at the painting every day, and even took it with him on his military campaigns. After Napoleon's fall from power, the Mona Lisa was returned to the Louvre. Over the years, the painting has also been the subject of various theft attempts and vandalism. In 1911. It was famously stolen from the Louvre Museum by an Italian thief named Vincenzo Perugia. He managed to keep the painting hidden for two years before he was caught trying to sell it to an art dealer in Florence. Interestingly, due to his characteristic style, Leonardo never delivered the painting to Francesco and instead kept the Mona Lisa with him until his death in 1519. On the 24th of October 1503, Leonardo was given keys to rooms in the Santa Maria Novella Church in Florence. Leonardo was to use these rooms as a workshop for a cartoon of a new commission, the Battle of Anghiari. The Battle of Anghiari was a mural painting that was commissioned by the government of Florence. It was intended to celebrate the Republic's military victory over Milan in the Battle of Anghiari in 1440. The painting was to be located in the Palazzo Vecchio, which is a town hall in Florence. A theme of Leonardo's life is his willingness to experiment and try new things, especially when it came to his artwork. We learned how he broke with the standard for that legendary first angel he painted in Verrocchio's workshop. The rest of the painting was in egg tempora, but Leonardo painted his angel using oil paints to brilliant effect. We learned how he experimented to paint The Last Supper. The Battle of Anugheri was no different. In this mural he attempted a type of painting which is believed to have been most similar to an encaustic painting, which is a type of painting involving hot wax and coloured pigments. During the painting of the Battle of Anugheri, Leonardo painted on one wall, whilst Michelangelo painted on the wall opposite. This was the first time we know about when these two titans of the Renaissance were working near each other. Both were well known at the time, and there was a sense of rivalry between them. The rivalry between Leonardo and Michelangelo was exacerbated because of their different artistic styles. Leonardo was known for his scientific approach to art, and his paintings often featured a sense of softness and delicacy whereas Michelangelo was known for his muscular and dynamic figures, particularly in his sculptures. The two artists had different personalities as well, with Leonardo being known for his charming and persuasive personality, and Michelangelo being more reserved and difficult to work with. There are also reports that Michelangelo was jealous of Leonardo's fame and success, and that Leonardo was dismissive of Michelangelo's work. In order to work on the Battle of Anhegeri, Leonardo once again displayed his inventiveness by creating a unique scaffold that could alter its height depending on how it was configured. The scaffold was designed by Leonardo himself, and likely was a complex system of wooden beams and brackets that extended out from the wall, with a platform at the top where Leonardo could stand and work. It also likely had a series of pulleys and ropes that allowed Leonardo to move up and down the wall as he worked, giving him greater control over his painting. Unfortunately, the exact design and construction of the scaffold are not known in detail, as the painting was never finished, and Leonardo's notes on the project have been lost. Although Leonardo started the project, it does not survive to this day, and no one knows exactly why. There are several theories about why Leonardo abandoned the project, but none of them have been confirmed. One theory is that Leonardo had difficulty with the medium he chose for the painting. The process he chose involved hot wax and coloured pigments, and it was recorded that the upper half of the work dried too dark and the lower half melted together. There is an account that suggests that this may not have been Leonardo's fault, however, as Leonardo claimed to have been deceived about the linseed oil he was using for the painting. Another theory is that Leonardo had disagreements with the government of Florence and was not paid in full for the commission. There is an account of how Leonardo went to the bank to receive some of his money for the painting and they insisted on paying him in small denominations, to which da Vinci exclaimed in outrage, I am no penny painter. As a result of this dispute, he may have abandoned the project out of frustration or as a form of protest. The most compelling reason is that Leonardo's services were wanted elsewhere. There is evidence to suggest that in 1507 the King of France intervened with the Florence Signoria to allow Leonardo to stop working on the project. We do know that the painting at least in a half-completed form existed for some time after Leonardo's death. There are accounts from the 1540s which describe the painting of the Battle of Anghiari in a town hall. What we don't know is what became of it. We don't know if the painting was removed, destroyed or painted over. Recent research projects have attempted to unearth this lost painting, but none have been successful. Perhaps the best insight we have into what the work would have looked like can be found in Peter Paul Rubens' copy of the work, which was completed around 1603. Rubens' copy was based on a drawing of the original by Leonardo, as well as sketches and descriptions of the painting that survived. Rubens was a great admirer of Leonardo and had studied his work extensively during his time in Italy. In 1504, Leonardo travelled to the town of Piambino, located on the coast of Tuscany. The reason for his visit is not entirely clear. He had been to Piambino two years before in 1502, under the service of Cesare Borgia in order to investigate the possibility of draining the marshes surrounding the port town. During his time in PNBNO in 1504, Leonardo worked on several projects, among which was the design of a fortress for the town. The fortress was designed as a star-shaped structure with five points, which was a revolutionary design at the time, the shape allowed for better defence against attackers as it provided more angles from which to fire weapons and better visibility for defenders. Leonardo's design for the fortress also incorporated several other innovative features, including a system for water supply and drainage, a ventilation system to prevent the build-up of gases from cannons and a series of underground tunnels to allow for the stealthy movement of soldiers. As with many of Leonardo's grand designs, the fortress was never built, as political instability in the region prevented its construction. Leonardo did not stay long in Piambino, and he was soon back in Florence working on the Battle of Anghiari. In 1506, Charles de Amboise, the French governor in Milan, wrote to the Signoria in Florence to request that Leonardo travel to Milan in order to design him a villa and garden. In May, that leave was granted, and in September, along with Salai, Leonardo set off for Milan. The next year, Leonardo took on Francesco Melzi as his second apprentice. He was impressed by the young Melzi's intelligence and creativity. Over the years, Melzi became one of Leonardo's closest companions and his most trusted assistant, and Melzi remained with him until Leonardo's death. Melzi's relationship with Leonardo was much more than the typical apprentice and master, he was a devoted friend and confidant to Leonardo and he was instrumental in preserving his memory and his legacy after his death. One of Leonardo's lesser known works was started somewhere between 1507 and 1508. Leonardo's Rivellino is a small fortress that he designed and built during his time in Milan. The fortress was intended to defend the Duchy of Milan from potential attacks. The Rivellino is located near Milan, in the town of Locarno, that today is in Switzerland, and was built on the orders of the French governor of Milan, Charles de Amboise. In addition to the design of the River Lino itself, Leonardo also designed a number of weapons that were intended to be used in its defence. These included catapults and other types of artillery. He was also commissioned by the Duke of Milan to create a variety of machines, ranging from powerful siege engines capable of breaking down a castle's doors, to cannons suitable for warfare. One of the machines he designed was a tank-like vehicle that could be used to break through enemy lines while protecting the soldiers within. It's unlikely, however, that this vehicle was created in Leonardo's day due to its weight, but it shows Leonardo's forward thinking. In the winter of 1507, Leonardo conducted one of his most important investigations. He was given the opportunity to perform a dissection on a centenarian a person who is over 100 years old. This was a rare opportunity for Leonardo, as at the time it was uncommon for people to live to such an old age. Leonardo was particularly interested in the anatomy of the human body, and he used the opportunity to study the centenarian's body in detail. He made detailed drawings and notes of his observations, which he later used in his anatomical studies. For Leonardo, The human body was like a machine, and he believed that by studying its workings, he could gain insights into how to create machines that mimic the body's function. Leonardo's anatomical studies were groundbreaking for their time, as they were some of the first to be based on direct observation and dissection of the human body. His detailed drawings and notes didn't just demonstrate a deep understanding, but they were also ingenious and original he developed unique ways to draw anatomy. In particular, his cross-sectional drawings were unlike anything else. As far as we know, he was the first person to draw a foetus in the womb. With this, as we have seen before with Leonardo, he was miles ahead of his time. As was characteristic with Leonardo, his notes show that he had developed a fascination with anatomy. He was particularly interested in the circulatory system and the heart. In fact, Leonardo produced the first known description of coronary artery disease. In 2014, nearly 500 years after Leonardo's death, researchers published a paper confirming the predictions about the flow of blood in the human heart that Leonardo had made. Leonardo had predicted that vortices were created when blood was pumped through the heart and Leonardo's diagrams and descriptions of this proved to be astonishingly accurate. What makes this discovery remarkable is that during Leonardo's time, it was impossible to observe such phenomena in a real heart, as there was no technology available to image a living heart. How then did he discover this behaviour? Well, Leonardo constructed a glass model of the heart, which he filled with water and grass seeds, and from this he could see how blood was likely to flow in the heart. Continuing our exploration of Leonardo's life, a theme that reoccurs is the idea of potential in his various projects. We are left wondering what they would have looked like if he completed them. One such example of this is the lost painting of Leda and the Swan. The painting was based on a Greek myth in which Zeus, the king of the gods, takes the form of the swan in order to seduce Leda, the queen of Sparta. Despite the fact that the painting is lost, there are a number of surviving sketches and preparatory drawings and copies that give us an idea of what the painting may have looked like. It is believed to have been lost or destroyed centuries ago. There is a report of it being in the Palace of Fontainebleau in 1625, and it is listed in the inventories for the palace in 1692, but after that point, the painting disappeared. Throughout his life, and particularly during his periods in Milan, Leonardo was fascinated by water. He was once referred to as a master of water. His notebooks are brimming with intricate drawings and studies related to water. In fact, the Codex Leicester, which was bought by Bill Gates in the 1990s for $30 million, is mainly composed of some of Leonardo's notes about water. Leonardo's fascination with water extended beyond mere curiosity. It had vital practical and economic implications during his time. Water held significant economic value as it was essential for irrigation, creating a crucial revenue stream. The ability to control water was of critical importance for the governments of the time. Amid projects we've already explored, such as diverting the Arno River, Leonardo devised a remarkable invention, a dredging machine, designed to clear silt and debris from the bottom of canals. This innovation facilitated smoother water flow, preventing canals from becoming blocks and stagnant. In addition, Leonardo also designed an ideal city that included an underground sanitation system. At the time, city streets and waterways were often used as open sewers, which posed serious health risks. Leonardo designed a system of underground channels to carry the waste away from the city and into the surrounding countryside. It is believed that one of the inspirations for this design was the bubonic plague, which had hit Milan in Leonardo's lifetime. In 1511, Leonardo's patron, Charles de Amboise, who was also the French governor to Milan, passed away. The following year, in 1512, Milan was invaded by Swiss soldiers set fire to parts of the city. As a result, Leonardo and his assistants had to seek refuge elsewhere. They ended up staying at the Melzi family villa, which was owned by Francesco Melzi. In late 1513, now aged 61, Leonardo secured a new patron in the form of Giuliano di Medici, the brother of Pope Leo X, and this led Leonardo to move to Rome to work for his new patron. Who allowed him to stay in rooms in the Vatican. During this time, Leonardo was interested in the study of optics, which is the study of light and its interaction with matter. He made several observations about visual perception, such as the fact that the edges of objects appear more distinct when viewed against a lighter background. Additionally, Leonardo studied anatomy and the function of the human eye, and made important discoveries about the way light enters the eye and is focused on the retina. In order to study the anatomy of the eye more closely, Leonardo developed an ingenious and highly unusual method to dissect an eye. He put the eye in an egg white and then boiled it. This had the effect of allowing the eye to be cut open without spilling the fluids inside the eye. There is some evidence to suggest that Leonardo may have used this study to develop a telescope-like device over a hundred years before the earliest confirmed telescope. Some historians have suggested that certain drawings in Leonardo's notebooks, such as one depicting a man holding a tube to his eye, may have been early conceptualizations of a rudimentary telescope. And he mentions either having created or intending to create glasses which would allow him to magnify the moon. He also had diagrams depicting a tube-like device with what could be a convex lens, but equally it might not be a telescope, and it does remain a topic of debate among scholars as to whether Leonardo invented the telescope. It is likely this device, if he created it, helped Leonardo be ahead of his time in a discovery about the moon. When we see a crescent moon in the sky, a thin portion of the moon is illuminated directly by the sun's light. The rest of the moon that is facing us is not in complete darkness. Instead, it's slightly illuminated. Leonardo had accurately worked out the source of this light. It was the Earth. More specifically, it was the light of the Sun reflected off the Earth. This phenomenon is known as planet shine or Earth Shine, and he was the first to write about it. One of the engineering projects Leonardo got involved with during this period was the project to drain the Pontine Marshes, which are south of Rome. The plan was to dig two channels from the marshes to the sea. Construction on the project started in 1515 with the digging of the channels, but as was the case with similar projects in the past, it was quickly abandoned. Not because of technical infeasibility or labour problems, but instead backlash from the local people who argued that the project amounted to papal annexation of the land belonging to them. The death of Leonardo's patron, Giuliano de' Medici, in 1516 was also a likely contributing factor. The ambition to drain the marshes remained until in 1922, when a project to drain the marshes was started by Benito Mussolini, primarily to prevent the spread of malaria. It was referred to as the Battle of the Swamps, and it was very successful. Again, Leonardo was ahead of his time. On the 12th of July, 1515, there was a banquet which was held to honour the French king, Francis I. And it was during that banquet that Lorenzo di Piero di Medici presented the king with a gift. And the gift was a mechanical lion that had been invented by Leonardo. It was characteristic of Leonardo's inventiveness. The lion contained a system of gears and pulleys that allowed it to move its head, tail, and limbs. It was also capable of producing realistic roars and other sounds, and it would open its chest to reveal a bunch of lilies. The crowd was amazed by its lifelike movement and the sounds of the lion. And Francis I was so impressed that he later, in 1516, appointed Leonardo as his first painter engineer and architect, and provided him with a generous stipend. When Leonardo entered the service of King Francis I in 1516, he was 64 years old. We know that he was still in Rome in August of that year, so it would have been after his birthday when he left Italy forever and moved to France to live in the king's summer palace called Manor de Clos. In the last three years of Leonardo's life, we believe he did not paint any major paintings. It is believed that one of his last paintings was St. John the Baptist, which is believed to have been painted between 1513 and 1516, and may have been a commission from Pope Leo X, but we don't know for certain. During the last years of Leonardo's life, one of the projects he was involved with was the design of a palace for King Francis. The palace was to be located in Romarantin. Leonardo's design included the provisioning of canals to draw water from the nearby river. The design was vast and included two main buildings with a series of smaller ones. Leonardo's vision was never realised because of his death in 1590. In 1519, Leonardo turned 67. And just a few days after his birthday, he wrote his will. One of the most notable bequests in his will is the request that his assistant, Francesco Melzi, receive all of his notebooks, sketches, and drawings. These materials, which amounted to thousands of pages, included some of Leonardo's most important scientific and artistic ideas, and were an essential part of his legacy. Leonardo also left part of his villa to Salai, along with some of Leonardo's personal belongings, such as the Mona Lisa. On the 2nd of May, 1519, just over a week after having written his will, Leonardo da Vinci died. The story of Leonardo's death has been immortalised in a painting, which Leonardo, by this point a frail old man, dies in the arms of the King of France. The exact cause of Leonardo's death is not known for certain, but it is believed he suffered from a stroke. According to some accounts, he had been complaining of illness and weakness for several months prior to his passing and during the weeks leading up to his death, he was bedridden. Leonardo was buried as per his request in the collegiate church of Florentine, the Chateau Amboise. Unfortunately, this church was damaged in the French Revolution, and eventually demolished along with some of the graves in 1802. The current whereabouts of Leonardo's remains are unknown. After Leonardo's death, his assistant and close friend, Francesco Melzi, inherited his notebooks, sketches, and other papers. Melzi took great care to preserve and organise the materials, which consisted of more than 7,000 pages of notes, drawings, and writings on a various range of subjects, including art, science, engineering, and philosophy. He also worked to ensure the materials remained in good condition and were protected from damage, it is thanks to Melzi's efforts that some of Leonardo's notebooks survive to this day. Melsey remained custodian of Leonardo's notebooks for many years until his own death in 1570. After that, the materials passed into the hands of Melzi's heirs, who continued to keep them safe and protected. Over time, some of the materials were lost or destroyed, and others were scattered across Europe and North America. Luckily, many of the notebooks and sketches have survived, and they remain an important source of information about the life and work of one of history's most influential artists and thinkers. As an artist, Leonardo is best known for his masterpieces such as the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper, which have become icons in their own right. As a scientist and engineer, Leonardo made groundbreaking discoveries in many domains including anatomy physics and mechanics. He was interested in understanding the natural world and the laws that govern it, and a seemingly boundless energy and compulsion to understand the world can be seen in his notebooks. Leonardo was also a prolific inventor, designing machines and devices that were far ahead of his times. He envisioned flying machines, diving suits, and a wide range of other contraptions that anticipated many of the technological developments of the modern era. When I think of why Leonardo da Vinci has fascinated us for so long, the word I think of is potential. Certainly Leonardo was a genius, but for me the word potential underscores the life and work of Leonardo. His insatiable curiosity led him to forever start projects and only finish a few. And the potential of these seeds of promise are intriguing in their incompleteness. What would it have looked like if Leonardo had diverted the Arno River? What would his unfinished masterpieces like the Adoration of the Magi have looked like if he finished them? What would he have discovered if he had more time? Leonardo was perhaps the most towering figure of the Renaissance. His unique capacity for learning, understanding and discovery are unmatched in the history of mankind. In the 500 years since his death, we have not seen another individual like Leonardo. It is doubtful we ever will. To me, Leonardo is one of the greatest minds to have ever lived. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Enduring Lives podcast. If you want to see other episodes or see the show notes for this episode, go to EnduringLives.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe if you want to get the latest episodes when they're released. I've been your host, Shane Lee. Thank you for listening. Until next time.